Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I am absolutely delighted today to have Dr. Alan McKay on the episode today. Alan teaches law at the University of Sydney Foundation Programme. He's also affiliate member of the Center for Agency, Value and Ethics at Macquarie University. Alan actually trained as a solicitor in Scotland and practiced in Hong Kong previously with Baker McKenzie. He also holds a PhD from the University of Sydney Law School, has been published in many, many journals, published a book on on free will and law, and has another book coming out actually in April of this year in 2020. We'll touch on a wide ranging topics, but firstly, Alan, welcome and thank you for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. Pleased to be here. And so we, we don't know each other. I actually, you caught my attention as we have a couple of mutual connections. And what triggered my interest certainly was the, the very, at least I think, peculiar intersection that you had um, with law, neuroscience and ethics. And I certainly want to touch on some of those areas today, if not all of them. Initially, to get started, what got you to that stage? What's the What's the background there? What's the story for neuroscience, ethics, and law? Yeah, I I think the thing that initially got me interested in it was as an undergraduate law student studying criminology, and uh, we looked at uh, factors influencing criminal behavior. And in the context of that, I I got interested in the free will problem, the philosophical problem of um, free will, whether and in the context of law, the question of whether offenders could deserve punishment, that, that seemed to flow on from that. And when I did my PhD, I tried to pick a topic that would, if not directly address that, at least have some kind of relationship to that uh, that question. And so I, I did my PhD on behavioral genetics and sentencing. So looking at the possibility that somebody might use behavioral genetics in a plea mitigation as they have done in some parts of the world. And from that, I later on got involved in a joint venture project between the University of Sydney and the Macquarie University also in, in Sydney. It was the Australian Neurolaw database that looked at cases where defendants and offenders and also some civil matters where uh, neuroscience has been used in in criminal or civil matters. And from neuroscience, I sort of uh, started to keep uh, going on uh, to the next the next level and started looking at neurotechnology, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, Something that's been, you know, discussed a fair bit in in the media recently, and uh, envisaging people committing crimes via neurotechnology, and then kind of a separate sort of offshoot, I became quite familiar with the philosophical work of an Australian judge uh, who's sadly passed away, called uh, David Hodgson, and I started looking at the his views on free will and. In relation to that, it struck me that uh, his views have something interesting to say about um, the question of what advantages humans may or may not have over artificially intelligent agents in the workplace of the future. So it's all kind of uh, my my interest is really in human decision making, human choices, and from that, the question of how we might differ from artificially intelligent agents and also looking at sort of hybrid agents where there's some kind of uh, neurotechnology involved mm-hmm. and generally in the context of the of the law. Awesome. And I think we'll certainly jump into a fair few of those offshoots there. If we could maybe take that in, in somewhat of an order that you, you described it in and start with 
the the use of neuroscientific evidence or any sort of neuroscience based evidence. So, and certainly how it affects sentencing. So, my my understanding, and please do correct me, as you're certainly the expert here. At the moment, when judges are considering sentencing, they may, for example, consider, amongst other things, the 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 upbringing of the 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 person in question, right? So, what kind of circumstances were present, and so on, and more and more, depending on the the case at hand, uh, it is being you know neuroscientific evidence is being presented. So think about brain scans and so on. But the, the point that you are making is, you know, there could be a genetic propensity towards aggression, for example, or maybe there could be presence of certain protein markers or enzymes or whatever there might be. So I think that the popular one is monoamine oxidase A, often referred to MAOA, which increases the sensitivity or the results of these sort of childhood affiliation so the question is and the what what do we consider do we consider just the the nurture aspect of it which is being considered now or do we also consider the effects of nature is that a fair summarization yeah i I think so the the take for example in australian criminal law there's a very important high court case which is the the top court in australia the case of Bugmy, which which says that judges, when they sentence offenders, they must at least consider if there's evidence that an offender has has come from a, a very adverse formative environment, a very difficult upbringing, maltreatment, alcohol, violence, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So this case says that judges must consider that when they sentence offenders no that that's very much on the on the nurture side you know good good authority very very powerful authority for that in australian law but as you mentioned there's been some research that's uh, suggested that of of males who have been maltreated those who have a low activity maoa gene that's monoamine oxidase a gene are, seem to be particularly affected by the the maltreatment and the famous and influential paper is it's called the rule of genotype and the cycle of violence it's by a team led by Abshal and Caspi in 2002 and it's mm. it's much cited you know there's been various meta studies you know there's some research that seems to suggest that there is this link I have to say that there are by no means, you know, there's some meta-studies that, that suggest the link is, is not there. So, but anyway, perhaps, the, perhaps the, it's, it's fair to say there's, there's reasonable grounds to think there might be uh, a link between being, well, there might be a exacerbating effect of the effects of being maltreated that comes from having being male and having a low-activity MAOA gene. So, I, I think that this hasn't been done in Australia, but I think that what could happen is a lawyer, perhaps a barrister in Australia, might point to the defender who's been sentenced mm-hmm. and say, look, he's, he's, got mal, he's been maltreated when he was young. And what's more, I've got this evidence from a forensic psychiatrist, that might be the person to give evidence, yeah. uh, that he's got a low activity MUA gene. And you'll be aware of the bug me precedent. And you know, you must consider the effects of the uh, maltreatment and it would be perverse to say well we're going to disregard the impact of uh, a genetic constitution that suggests that somebody might be particularly uh, vulnerable so basically a barrister might might argue that the offender deserves more mitigation that that would be the way the argument might go one thing I should say is judges in Australia don't have to mitigate in the case of uh, maltreatment. There might be some sort of countervailing reason why they, they don't, but they must at least consider it. So there's not been any Australian cases yet. There has been American cases and also Italian cases that are reported in the literature. You know, the results are of, of using this kind of strategy, the maltreatment plus 
low activity MOA gene mm-hmm. strategy and a claim mitigation are, are not. Like, they're not. You know, I think it'd be wrong to say that they. We could. We can know that they've had a big effect on sentence. So, you know, they they may have had a marginal effect. But uh, yeah, so I think somebody, you know, that could argue that way in a plain mitigation in Australia and perhaps in a number of other jurisdictions. Yeah, and uh, that's interesting because, you know, as as you said, it's something that can be considered, but doesn't mean that a judge has to act on it. And in not all instances, do you know exactly the the breakdown of what were the the factors that the judge considered? You you they might give an opinion on some of the things they considered, but certainly not everything. And I mean, just just playing devil, just playing devil's advocate. Do you think there's a potential risk then that this could be taken? the other way as well so could could this be argued and maybe in a more even more adversarial system i should say like the us where one could say well because of these things uh, certain sort of genetic markers or genes uh, maybe there is a presence of this crime gene or whatever it might be called uh, that a person an individual is more or less likely to be have committed an aggressing event could it be argued from that perspective as well because uh, that, that's the that that's partly the risk of any of these things right where it becomes a slippery slope not not, not that way anywhere there i'm just sort of talk, talking hypotheticals uh, but i can certainly sort of take that view too right yeah this uh, i mean people sometimes refer to the the idea of a double edge or the metaphor of a double edged sword mm. so on the one hand it seems to suggest perhaps that the offender is less morally culpable for what they did because of this adverse sort of genetic constitution in con- conjunction with the the environmental situations. But then on the other hand, they, they might say, well, they're, they're more dangerous. And that, 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 that could happen. That, certainly in the Australian law, that, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, the judges don't have to mitigate. They, 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 might, they might think that the countervailing considerations of dangerousness outweigh the sort of mitigation pool of the diminished moral culpability. Interesting, there is a bit of research uh, being done on that. So, for example, in, in the context of American criminal justice, um, there's a, a law academic called Deborah Denner, and she's, she's looked at that question. And from memory, I think she found that there wasn't too much, there wasn't too much evidence in the case that she'd reviewed of okay. the backfiring and it you know leading to a more severe punishment or something like that she didn't find much evidence of that so but yeah that that that, that does there is a kind of a double-edged sword mm-hmm. but you know in in some ways i think a sort of better a better strategy would be if if a, a lawyer could do the plea and mitigation, say that the offender's got a lot of the MOG, being maltreated, they're less morally culpable and less deserving of retributive punishment. And if perhaps between the offending and sentencing they'd gone into some kind of intervention, perhaps something like a anger management program mm-hmm. or, or, you know, like peering down the track a bit, some sort of neuro, med, neuro intervention, you know, some sort right. of medication, perhaps even, you know, like if, 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 if somebody could make an argument that this dangerousness issue had been taken care of somehow through some form of rehabilitation, then the, the, the pool of the, the, the upwards pool on sense might be somewhat neutralized, but that's just as a possibility yeah for sure and i i can see already that you know uh, there there could be a slew of medication available uh, <laughs> being marketed to reduce your your criminal impulses and so on so i, I think you can certainly sort of take this to the extreme but no, as you said i think there's a lot of um, i think there's some some research on both sides of the of the coin i suppose but you know until until the theory develops further and there's more evidence and certainly more more decisions being made where we know that some 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 of these factors may or may not be considered more so it's still quite early days and and then you mentioned that 
you've been involved in the Australian Neural Law Database. So what's, yep. what, what kind of things does that track? What's the purpose, of, purpose behind that? I think broadly the, the, the purpose is really that there's been a lot of academic papers, perhaps more on neuroscience on, you know, rather than, the, of course, there's a neuroscience aspect to um, the MUA thing because it involves, it involves uh, chemicals in the brain. But the, the you know, a lot, there's been a lot of research done on a lot of academic papers on things like head injuries and tumours. That sort of thing in the context of criminal justice, and some people, some of the theorists have gone on to say that this understanding of neuroscience will revolutionise the criminal justice system and maybe move us away from a kind of a retributive paradigm to a more consequentialist paradigm, where mm. the criminal justice are more like uh, rehabilitation or incapacitation or deterrence or something like that and ditch the retributivism and so what one of the things one of the things we wanted to do is to uh, try and take a more empirical approach and just uh, try and find cases and just in which there is some kind of neuroscience evidence perhaps from a forensic psychiatrist or something you know perhaps evidence of a head injury in the past or and just find out how the courts are actually dealing with it so rather, rather than a bit more of an armchair kind of speculation on on what might happen. So it's very much an empirical project. So we started looking for cases, uh, not just anything, all, all kind, all, you know, various kinds of criminal cases, although perhaps sentencing is the is the place where neuroscience is most likely to to turn up, uh, but it's not it's not just neuroscience. So we, we've broadened out and looked for um, civil matters in which neuroscience is used. Although I have to say I've sort of been a bit more involved in the criminal side than the right. civil side. But basically, it's a it's a publicly accessible database. So if if, if somebody wants to use it, they can you know just Google Australian Neural Law Database, and they can log in. It's free to use, and it, you know there's various summaries of, mm -hmm. of cases in which there's some kind of neuroscience angle. So it's it's, it's just finding out what's happening on the ground, you know, right. rather than a sort of armchair speculation about what might happen in response to neuroscience. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's really interesting, and I'll, I'll include the links in the show notes uh, for, for the database, but uh, it, it sort of took me back um, to, to my undergraduate work uh, in neuroscience and just thinking about certainly, A, the the well, the, the frequency in which neuroscientific evidence is now being used in water courts is certainly increasing, partly because there's, you know, the, the science and technology improves, so it's easier to do so, and there's actually more uh, i suppose more considered way uh, of measuring certain things and then the other in the question that sort of popped in my head uh, certainly is how does neuroscience really concern itself with the notion of blame and potentially in the in in the realm of law with you know what the deserved punishment might be and the blame point is quite interesting because i remember looking back into the work again, going really far back for me, at least, I'm sure lots of things have changed in neuroscience, but, you know, there, there's certain things that happen or certainly certain research points that have been done where if an individual is affected by certain things or uh, for in, in the case of some Parkinson patients a long, long time ago in research, that they will have certain propensity to do things that may or may not be uh, in their more in their nature as an individual so they would maybe do more risk uh, more risky things they'll have certain risky behaviors that will take in part because of how they're getting an influx of dopamine and other neurochemicals right so how do you actually decide between what an individual is responsible for and what may just be the result of, of an affliction but i think certainly sort of tracking where this evidence has been used is a good starting point because one of the obviously the other challenging parts with law is going to be how different jurisdictions interpret that data and how it's used and of course the individual laws that might be around as well uh, but it, it certainly is a developing 
field. And I think as we improve our understanding of how the brain works, certain disorders in the brain, and certainly how the, the, the effect of certain neuro, neurochemicals on activity, on behaviors, uh, that will start being brought in, I suspect, more and more within the courts to maybe use as a point of leverage to say, well, this is maybe why this person behaved in this way. I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are saying that it's it's being brought in, in more and more. It's, it's actually a little bit uh, difficult to, to test how frequently neuroscience is used because a lot of people that are doing research in this area like, like me or I'm a PhD student, Armin Alan Adani, who's he's recently uh, finished his PhD and he's had a good look at um, Australian neuro law and um, the, the use of uh, neuroscience. Uh, and then I was in America, Lisa Farahani and others. Uh, what, one of the things that makes it a bit difficult uh, for us is to um, to make any quant- to make quantitative claims is that uh, we are relying on databases and uh, databases of cases and you know the the practices of how many cases get included in the databases that we use to search are, are not not al- not always clear and so you know it's it's a little bit tricky to be sure about trajectories. My my sense is it probably is getting used more. I, I suspect you know a lot. You know, so, so for example, a case, a neuroscience case might be one where somebody has had a history of head injury or something like that. And, you know, perhaps hospitals are more likely to do brain scans. And so that's more likely to sort of appear in a, an expert witnesses report. So that's more likely to get addressed uh, by a barrister and or other lawyer and subsequently a judge. So, mm. Yeah, I think I think it is. Yeah, I think I think that that's my very non-scientific basis for making that claim, which is you know just as the cost of doing these kinds of scans and tests reduces, it means that just as a precautionary measure in most head injury type situations or spinal injuries, it might just be a a a safeguard to do these tests, which means it's more yeah. that their tests are available and could be potentially used. Doesn't mean that they are always used. And yeah, it is difficult to track because it will be generally unlikely that this thing will appear on its own, right? It's muddled in with a number of other factors, issues. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that is quite tricky. I mean, I mean, certainly I think it's, it's clear to say that there's a, to take, for example, again, the example is from Australia, as that's the jurisdiction I'm most familiar with, despite my Scottish accent. The, the, there are many, many cases in which some kind of uh, neuroscience evidence is, is used. In, in it, there's nothing unusual about it appearing in an expert's evidence mm-hmm. and somewhat addressed by the the judge. But the, one of the things that's often very difficult to know is uh, what what impact did it have? You occasionally you can get some striking cases where the impact is clear. So myself and the psychiatrist at, at Sydney Uni, um, Chris, Chris Ryan, we, we did a paper where we looked at one South Australian case where the neuroscience evidence was introduced on appeal. And that clearly made a big difference to the, the decision. And we know that because it, it wasn't there on at first instance, but it was there on appeal. But that's the that's the unusual case. Usually, neuroscience evidence is is sort of included with all this other stuff, mm-hmm. formative circumstances, stress at work, or whatever. What role did it? What role did it have? It's, it's quite hard to to know. Right. Just often don't make it that entirely clear. They might say something like, "I've taken it into account." Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a very objective measure of how much into account has been taken. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, yeah. It's hard to know how much they took it into account or, yeah. And, or to what extent it was double edged or, yeah. Know. Yeah. Quite a difficult area to study, but 
but uh, still we try. <laughs> For sure. Well, it, it seems like, uh, you know, some of the things that you focus on, uh, it, it's certainly coming out of a challenge and, you know, it's uh, almost a grassroots bit. So um, pushing people to study it more closely and that that's an impact that we'll have. And I, I think so that the second point, uh, if I can use this as a segue, was around looking at free will and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how that impacts the, the future of work and, you know, you, you mentioned that you, I don't know if it's fair to call sort of influence, but certainly sort of taken, took into consideration Judge Hodgson's work. And I think he speculated, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, that in, in terms of the emergence of consciousness and free will, evolution had a part to play. And I think one of the, one of the points from there is, you know, if you think about the, the future AI agents or what are the hybrid or full AI agents, then having this evolutionary advantage of having free will and uh, consciousness uh, sets us apart. Um, but before we sort of dig deep into that, I know you you authored a great paper which, which focuses on this around, and I'll link this certainly in, uh, in the show notes as well, around the value of consciousness and free will and how that affects and certainly in, in connection with technology. Would you mind just sort of summarizing the, sort of the key takeaways or the abstract from that paper? Sure, yeah. The, the, uh, I'll just explain a little bit as well how I came to write the paper. I, I became very familiar with the philosophical work of uh, David Hodgson, who was a, he was a judge of appeal in New South Wales Supreme Court and, uh, and also a philosopher. And this year we got a, myself and my co-author, Michael Seville, got a book out um, which, in which a team, uh, a group of philosophers responded to David Hodgson's last book on free will. So I, I sort of became very familiar with um, his ideas about free will. And what happened was I just totally separately, uh, I, like many other people around the world, I read Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus, mm-hmm. uh, Brief History of Tomorrow. And I thought it was a fascinating book. Mm-hmm. I uh, loved it and found it very stimulating. But I, as I was reading, I kept on thinking, uh, I know what David Hodgson would say uh, in response to this. Or I think I know, I shouldn't say, he's not here to... It would be nice to show him the paper, but sadly he died a number of years ago. But but basically, the gist of it, the gist of it uh, is that according to Yuval Noah Harari, human choice is algorithmic. The algorithmic. So there's nothing, according to to him, it seems like there's nothing in principle that an unconscious algorithmic machine artificially intelligent machine can do there's no advantage in being conscious compared with a non-conscious algorithmic machines because ultimately our choices are are also algorithmic the algorithms implemented in uh, artificially intelligent agents are getting better and better and ultimately uh, surpass us in all respects so uh, i think harari's assumption is or he claims that you know if we are algorithms and machines are based on algorithms that eventually there comes a point as machines become better and better that the non-organic machine substrate without consciousness uh, will eventually be as good as us and and potentially even surpass us right so how what does that mean for us as humans with consciousness yes Yes, that's, that's right. And so on that view, it seems like the human consciousness doesn't seem to add much because on Harari's view, ultimately, human decision-making is ultimately algorithmic. And as these algorithmic machines are getting better and better, they will surpass us and dire implications for the future of work because it seems that anything that humans can do, these non-conscious algorithmic machines can can do as well or, or will be able to do as well or better so anyhow in in as i uh, was reading that i i kept on thinking well if, if if david hodgson's view is right then that's not that's not true so if david hodgson's view is right then the, there is some kind of a, a 
advantage in the workplace from being a conscious human. And there's certain kinds of humans can engage in a certain kind of judgment when they make decisions that is not open to non-conscious algorithmic machines. So the, in a nutshell, the, the consciousness provides a facility for judgment that has in the past had probably had an evolutionary advantage that is lacking in algorithmic non-conscious machines. And according to, according to my, my paper, which, um, uses David Hodgson's views, this may be economically advantageous to us because using this judgment that we have as a result of being conscious may, may provide an advantage in the workplace. That's not to say that, that non-conscious algorithmic machines won't, um, you know, won't take away many jobs. It's just to say that there are some things that are valuable in the workplace that, that won't, that, that won't be taken away if, if Hodgson is, is right. Yeah. And one of the things that caught my attention as I read the paper was, so this, the, the claim of the, the human-based performance on, you know, algorithmic reasoning. Um, so that yep. ties in with Harari's view. And then the plausible reasoning, right, which is way, which is sort of weighted on other things where the the reasons for making certain decisions may be inconclusive, right? So you're sort of making decisions where maybe you don't have enough evidence or it may not be uh, as logical as a machine might get to their point. And, you know, I, I agree with your viewpoint that, of course, uh, over time, as it has happened, you know, so far in history, as technology advances, there are certain things that become obsolete in terms of sort of work. But in most instances, certainly this is my personal view, that in most instances, it also creates other other avenues of work, which are actually hard to predict. It's really difficult to see that from this point onwards. So in, in the future, it may be that, yes, a lot of the jobs may go away, but a lot more newer jobs may be created as a result um, when we have these other sort of machine agents roaming around or whatever form they take. Yeah, I, that, that might be right. Uh, and that does seem to be, have been the case his, historically. I suppose Harari thinks that, that that might, might change and the, you know, the, the, the might be, the new jobs might, the humans might not fare so well <laughs> in the, the new jobs that are to be created as well. I think he even entertains the idea because he, even he sort of envisions this sort of potential of having a, a split in humanity at some point, right? Where humans get upgraded through some sort of a technological process and they then make significant decisions. So maybe whether it's a small group or, or you know, these sort of superhuman, non-human algorithmic based life forms or whatever that will make some decisions for the mass of society and other human beings might be subordinate to them. I mean, a lot of this sounds very, uh, very bleak to be honest, but I mean, I mean, no one knows, right? You're sort of speculating based on how things are developing, what's happened in the past. And it's really difficult to, to know that because we're sort of moving into an age and very quickly move, moving into this age where things have, not really accelerated to this pace in the past. And you know, if you look at what's around us today, um, what's been used by billions and billions of people, uh, some of these technologies, whether it's the Facebooks of the world or something else, didn't exist you know, 15, 20 years ago, right? And to go from there to have the, the use case uh, to, to be impacting a billion plus people is quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, no, the, that's right. Yeah, so it's clearly a difficult thing to predict how, how, how many new jobs will offset the, the jobs that have been automated. But the, I think that the, 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 the key, the key thing for, if, if my take on Hodgson is right, mm -hmm. is that there are just some things that are, resistant to automation in, in principle. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, it's, this is uh, sort of the opposite of the Australian neuro law 
database <laughs> because this is armchair theorizing rather than taking an empirical approach. And the the, the time time will be the uh, time will be the test on this. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I, I do agree. I think having the evolutionary basis of consciousness, um, I, I think, does provide economic value. And I think it certainly gives us a a specific capacity that non-conscious AI agents will lack, or certainly at least if I if I forecast from now into what I can see, that seems to be the way. But it is, you know, the the duality is very quickly coming close together, and there might be a point where it merges. We'll have to see it, but as you said, you know, it's one of those things that we're just theorizing, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, the question is whether uh, you know it happens in our lifetime or you know for the next generation to figure out. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I think there's a there's a sort of limit to armchair theorizing, but it, it, I, I think it's sort of worth worth having a go at and um, think about it but the ultimately you know the, the question of which what which of uh, the scenarios that Harari envisages comes to pass is is um, it's ultimately uh, something we'll have to sort of wait and see but 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 maybe if, if there is a value to plausible reasoning so that's the ability to 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 consciously make a judgment about what to do in the face of uh, decisions that in which the con- conclusions are not entailed by the premises. So perhaps in the case of making decisions faced with incommensuals, if there is a value to that, then that that might be a reason to to think the idea of. Um, human enhancement into superhumans might be a bit more plausible because presumably those superhumans would be able to retain the, the, the conscious, valuable judgment, which can cause plausible reasoning. And, you know, that might be a, a reason to think that uh, that's more likely than a situation where humans are just a, become a sort of useless class. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, very, very much so. And I, I think um, that probably is a, as good a segue as we're going to get into the, the next and probably the final point, which is around, and this is very much the, the fringe topic, uh, which is around sort of BCI's brain-computer interfaces. So for anyone who's not familiar with what these things are, essentially the idea behind BCI is that this is a computer-based system that is able to acquire your brain signal analyze them and then translate them into a command that outputs a certain action, right? And this action could be something physical, so moving something in in the real world, a machine or something along those lines, or it could be something where you are essentially translating certain, certain things uh, in, in form of a computer command, uh, so moving something digitally. Uh, the, these are generally, the, that's kind of the general premise behind BCIs. I mean, it's, it's a topic that's been around for a long time, certainly since the 70s and so on, where they started experimenting a bit more with them. And in the past, it very much needed to be a invasive procedure where there's implants and, and electrodes that are sort of put on your scalp that, that sort of are able to pick up the brain signals um, through advances in technology. And there's a, a slew of, uh, of startups that are actually working on this, including you know Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and so on, that are working on non-invasive ways of doing that. And uh, I think we're recording this at the start of January. We have CES coming up, which is a big tech show. Uh, and I'm, cer- I'm certain there will be announcements there into what BCIs can do. But I know you've spoken about this in the past. I was sort of more of an introduction to what it is. What What's your... What's your interest in BCI, and how does that relate to any of the work that you've been doing? Yeah, so my, my interest uh, relates to the possibility of uh, people committing offences by way of brain-computer interface. So mm-hmm. traditionally, when people commit offences, they use their, their body, their muscle system, 
you know, you can get crimes of omission, but but many crimes involve some kind of bodily action, like throwing right. a punch, hitting someone, or shooting, pulling a trigger. Now, one of the interesting sort of thoughts that comes up from neurotechnologies, in particular brain-computer interfaces, is if somebody, say for example, commits a crime over the internet, I've talked about intimate image abuse, for example. So if somebody controls a cursor to upload images of uh, another person without their consent, sexual images of another person without their consent, mm -hmm. consent, the question is, what's the criminal act if it's if there's no traditional bodily action? Right. Uh, if, and and uh, they're sort of going back to law one and one, sort of considering, you know, the, the actus rea and the mens rea, right? So, you know, what is the yeah. actual act, the act as part of that? Uh, is that the computer or is the individual? Yeah, so traditionally, at least in respect of serious offences, the prosecution have got to prove that the defendant acted with the, the requisite mens rea, so the mm. requisite guilty mind, perhaps, perhaps intending to kill in the case of murder. And they also have to prove that they, some conduct, something the offender, the offender did that constitutes the, the actus reus. And the, mm. the, the conduct is, is usually about where, where, where it is an action rather than a mission. It's usually a bodily action. Right. And so there's something strange about the person committing an offense by way of by way of thoughts that are decoded by brain computer interface and then translated into uh, a command to a computer there doesn't seem to be a bodily action there and the the question is the interesting question is so so what was the criminal act then maybe best with a hypothetical example so one way of working with BCIs is to do things like imagine bodily actions. So you might imagine waving your hand. The, the BCI might be trained to recognize that the neural activity associated with an imagined hand wave mm -hmm. as a command to move the cursor right, uh, for example. Right. right. And somebody might you know, obtain control over a cursor and then be able to commit the revenge porn offense by way of imagining various movements. Now the the question is so so what's the what's the criminal act there? So it seems like one possibility is they you might say, well the conduct constituting the actus reus is the act of um Imagining a hand wave, so that'd be like a mental act. So the, the 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 law could say, okay, well, you know, in the past we've always focused on physical conduct, conduct constituting the actus reus, but but now we're going to um, we're going to accept that you can have mental acts if if they trigger uh, events in the real world, otherwise than by way of a bodily action. So that, that's quite a, I mean, that's one possible way that the, 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 the courts could go on that. But that, that's quite a sort of interesting step because thus far, criminal acts have always been bodily. Another possibility is they, they might say, well, the brain is, is part of the body. And so that, you know, uh, a person who, um, a person who imagines waving their hand, that 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 there's some associated neural activity. That neural activity is part of the their their body, right. and so they kind of uh, jiggled their motor cortex, mm. and that that jiggling of the motor cortex is the is the physical is, is act. Yeah. That's the that's the criminal act. Mm. Uh, seems a bit sort of strange, but that seems one <laughs> way to yeah. go. Or I think perhaps. Particularly in the case of implanted BCI, mm. that would be more perhaps more easily seen by the courts to be part of the defendant 
So you might say that the defendant is a, is a cyborg and they're part biological and they're part non-biological. Right. You know, so the, the, the flow of electrical signal through the BCI, through the wire, let's assume it's a implanted BCI with a wire going out to mm -hmm. an external device. They might say, well, that flow of signal is, 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 it flowed through their body. That's part of their body. So they, by imagining the hand wave, they flowed signal and that, that flow, that flow of signal is the conduct constituting the actus reus. But then you might say, okay, where's the defendant and the, uh, and say the external device begins. So let's assume the wire and the yeah. wire goes device and that's connected to the internet where's the where's the boundary of the defendant then so there's a sort of interesting question about that or, or perhaps another option for the court is to say that the conduct constituting the actus reus for some combination of, of those three mm. it's already complicated now once you start <laughs> okay, a combination of all three that seems to perhaps further complicate it and my point is is not that um the law would just say, well, a person who's committed an offence by way of BCI is not guilty because we can't figure out what the act conduct constituting the act of reus is. They will, they will say something. Mm -hmm. You know, one of these options or a combination of them is is the conduct, but it's it's an odd, it's a somewhat odd thing for the criminal law. And it, you know, like new technologies bring new challenges. Of course, you know, I can remember. The law responding and creating various internet offences and so forth. Right. But that, that's kind of like chapter eleven of the textbook. Whereas, <laughs> this, you know, mens rea actus reus distinction is really that's core to the criminal law. That's like chapter one. So it seems a bit more. <clears throat> the, the challenges seem a bit more core and fundamental. Thank you, but I think it's an important point, right, that you, you bring up that as technology is changing again, some of these concepts and some of these concepts have been around for such a long time that as new technologies become more prevalent and we start seeing maybe more and more BCIs because, you know, at the moment largely living in the world of implanted BCIs, but even that is a, a rarity and generally done through very deliberate action for, you know, for a specific reason. As you move into the world of uh, non-invasive BCIs and it becomes more of a recreational thing and a lot of the, I mentioned some of the startups coming up, a lot of these are there to do exactly the kinds of things that you're suggesting, which is to have to provide a way to take simple action, right? I have this device that is able to essentially translate my brain signals to move the cursor on the screen or to be able to send a text message or to be able to send photographs or something along those lines. How do we actually create those links and, you know, and start, you know, as you said, you don't have to rewrite the law, but you still have to start considering the advancements in technology into making decisions and, you know, how, that becomes part of judicial reasoning. And I, I think over there, and I mean, this this space is moving very quickly. I mean, we're talking about this in 2020, I suspect probably in the next four or five years, this will not be a novel thing. It might be a very commonplace thing. I could be wrong. Again, it's one of those sort of arm, armchair reasoning a little bit. But as that happens, we will start seeing actual cases uh, where decisions need to be make, uh, made and that will start shaping how 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 BCIs and so on is considered with regards to actus rea. Yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, it, th there does seem to be a, a great deal of commercial excitement about it and mm -hmm. the, the kind of organizations that are investing in it. So the military, you know, DARPA and mm -hmm. uh, all these tech companies like Neuralink and Control Labs, I think it's just been bought by Facebook, yeah. suggest that, that this is these are going to be you know, something in this technology and they are, they, people are going to be acting by in a kind of non-bodily way. And my, my view is that, that, that some of the challenges that come from, from that is, are more, they're greater challenges to the way the 
the, the, the criminal law operates than some of the technologies we've considered before, like, say, internet technology, which was really quite disruptive for the right. law. But, of course, they found a way through, and, you know, there's new cases, new legislation, and that sort of thing. But this is the, the idea of acting otherwise and by one's body is, it seems a bit more a bit more fundamental than some other technologies that have, um, and that the, the law has had to consider so far yeah and i mean this is yeah, this is certainly very much um on, on the fringe of things I, I think it's really interesting to think about uh, the possibilities and certainly some of the options that you presented and you know i, I would say watch the space is there's going to be plenty of movement and anyone working within sort of criminal law or research or even philosophy, I think there's a great deal of interest here and uh, there'll be a lot of new things to, to challenge the way that we think about these things. And so as we, as we wrap up, I know we covered quite a lot. So we went from talking uh, about essentially the, the role of neuroscience and certainly the role of, um, genetics and sentencing and punishment. We move from there to looking at free will, how that might affect the future of work, Harari's views versus Hodgson's views. And then lastly, we sort of just talked about brain-computer interfaces and potentially in relation to criminal law and how how things might shape up in the future. So yeah, thank, thank you so much, Alan, for coming on. It was a wonderful conversation. If people want to find out more other than some of the points that you raised earlier, where else can they learn more? I, I know you have a, a book coming out. It's in, in April 2020, is that right? Yes, yeah. We've got uh, myself and my co-editors, Nicole Vincent and Tom, Nick, Thomas Neilhofer. We've got a, a book uh, coming out called Neurointerventions Neuro on the Law regulating human mental capacity, which is coming out in April, Oxford University Press, and that uh, looks at a range of neurointerventions, ranging from medications that are supposed to reduce the risk of offending to neurotechnologies like brain-computer interfaces or deep brain stimulation or uh, even hippocampal prosthetics to enhance memory in the context of criminal law and also outside criminal law. So, you know, it also looks at things, the possibility of using neurotechnologies in the workplace. And, yeah, so it comes out in April, uh, and we're we're excited about that. We've got a great group of contributors to our book and looking forward to seeing the... uh, Hard copy. Fantastic. Well, yeah. So today, what we discuss is very much the tip of the iceberg. Again, probably by the time this episode goes live, we'll be closer to the launch of the book. Uh, So I'll certainly include links and and resources pointing to that as well. So yeah, if if any of these topics take your fancy, I would consider picking up that book. Also have a look at Alan's previous book around free will and the law, The New Perspectives, uh, which certainly goes into the topic of free will in, in a lot more detail too. And again, Alan, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you. Thank you.